So if you ever watched the movie The Miracle, how many of you have seen that movie, The Miracle, about this event? Wow, lots of you. you ever watched that movie Miracle, you remember, or maybe you watched the game. How many of you watched the game actually live on television? Wow, some of you. Does that mean bring me another one? I'm just going to keep preaching, all right? Uh, watch the game live on television. You know the ending is incredibly uh, emotional. The Americans gave every ounce of energy they had and left it all on the ice and ended up defeating the Soviets four to three. I don't think anybody but notices that. If we just want to keep going, I don't, you guys hear that? I don't know, is that just me? Maybe it's in the monitor, it's just me. Yeah. Everybody, Brian, you want to wave everybody as you come down awkwardly? Everybody say hi to Brian as he comes down. Very exciting. I don't know if that was necessary, whoever that was. Check one, two, chickity check yourself before you wreck yourself. All right. So uh, Sports Illustrated called this moment, if you've ever seen it, uh, the greatest moment of the 20th century. Now that's pretty incredible because think about all the great sports moments of the last 20th century. Ali versus Frazier in 1971. Uh, Michael Jordan hitting the buzzer beater over Byron Russell in the 1998 uh, finals, the 1932 World Series. Anybody see that live? Yeah. <laughs> if so, you're an apostle. I just want to share that, all right? 1932 World Series, game three, Babe Ruth calls his shot and hits a home run. Think about all those moments, but Sports Illustrated said this moment, the Winter Olympics topped all of them because of the improbability of what happened. And when the improbable happens, it becomes a memory for the ages, well, as we continue our series through the book of Acts, we're going to come to Acts chapter 9, and we're going to discover in the early church one of the most improbable moments that's ever been recorded in all of church history. So turn with you there to Acts chapter 9, your phone, your tablets, your Bibles, whatever you're using this morning. And more improbable uh, than the 1980 Winter Olympics victory is the encounter that we're going to find here that a man 2,000 years ago, the most unlikely of candidates, surrendered his life to Jesus Christ and became quite possibly the world's greatest missionary. And what Jesus does by his grace is nothing short of a miraculous, improbable encounter. So Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what they describe the followers of Jesus, the way uh, they would describe them. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And now he, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to them, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you're about to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. As we see the 
radical transformation that takes place here in Saul's life, going from breathing threats against the disciples to becoming a chosen instrument of God's grace, sometimes we might wonder this, can can that really happen still today? Is that that God really still changing people that radically? Is there anybody, aren't there some folks that when we think of are so far from God, it's so improbable they would ever get saved that we read this and say, hey, that's an incredible historical account, but is God still in the business of radical transformation today? And what do we see played out here in this passage? This morning I want to walk through the text in Acts chapter 9 and give us three tools to build a bold faith this morning. So number one is simply this. Believe that God can overcome the hardest of hearts. If you've got someone in the room this morning that it comes to mind that you think they're so far from God, it is so unlikely they're ever going to receive Christ. Would you just raise your hand this morning and acknowledge that? Because I've got some in my life. Yeah, most of us do in the room, right? People that in our minds, we can't ever fathom them becoming a Christ follower. They're the furthest thing from pursuing Jesus. And so we can't imagine. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a boss, maybe it's one of your children or grandchildren. You've given advice to them over the years, you've encouraged them, you've shamed them, you've corrected them, you've prayed for them for decades, and all of your efforts seem to not matter at all. Your prayers don't seem to get past the ceiling. Your words seem to fall on deaf ears. And you begin to wonder, the longer that that doesn't happen, you begin, doubt begins to set on, it's never going to happen. They're too far gone. Maybe this morning it's yourself. Maybe you're thinking, hey, I've tried to make some changes in my life. I've promised God I would never do that again. I've tried to turn over a new leaf uh, every single year. And I just eventually go back to my old ways. I I know I need to change, but I've been this way for, for so long. I've learned how to navigate life with all these inadequacies and sin patterns. And so I just can't imagine ever actually changing. And so this morning, what I want to see in this passage is that while change is improbable, uh, it is never impossible when God is at work. One of the most pivotal moments in the book of Acts happens right here in Acts chapter 9. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. But Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. That Listen, here's what's happening in verse 1. He's not having an epiphany. He's not saying, you know, I've been thinking about my life and pondering my decisions I've made and the consequences of my actions. No, no, no. He's still running full speed ahead at what he loves to do, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So he went to the high priest and said, "Uh, I need some letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if I find any of those Christians, men or women, I can bring them bound up back to Jerusalem. He's out searching for people who are following Jesus actively when this encounter happens. He's ruthless. And so if there's ever a guy that we would say, hey, this fits the bill of a person who's too far gone, too far away from the Lord, it absolutely would be Saul of Tarsus. Again, he wasn't on the Damascus Road saying, you know, as I reflect over my life right now, I really feel like I probably should make some changes. And, And, you know, just wrestling through. No, no, no. He was on a mission to destroy the disciples. Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 11, Saul himself acknowledges this. Listen to these words. He said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only shut up many of the saints in prison by authority from the chief priests. Remember what he just asked permission for in verse 2? 
He said, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And what is he saying? He's saying, hey, when they they put them to death, I voted. That was a good decision. I agreed wholeheartedly. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, not some of them, in all the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme because that was a crime that was punishable by death. So we could say, hey, this is justifiable. And in, here's, listen to these words, raging fury against them. I persecuted them, listen to this, even to foreign cities. Jerusalem wasn't enough. He says, I'm willing to chase these followers of the way, these Christians. I'm willing to chase them all over the country. I'm just not looking around and saying, well, there's one, there's one, and those things. He says, uh, I'm chasing them all over the place. His lust for Christian blood was insatiable. The Greek word and the verse paints a word picture, listen to this, of a wild boar raging through a garden. That was Saul of Tarsus. Just raging through there on a mission, wreaking havoc, destroying anything that was in his way so that he might accomplish this mission. He was their worst enemy his whole life, totally consumed. Every breath, every thought, every step, every intention, every plan to slaughter the disciples of a Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Listen, he's so consumed with this desire that when you study the background of this text, what you find out is it was a six-day walk to Damascus. I don't know if there's anywhere I would walk six days, right? Sometimes at night, maybe Taco Bell, but most of the time, no thank you. Most of the time, I'm like, I don't want to get in the car and drive five minutes, right? Six-day walk. That's how driven he was. We might say Saul's motto was, you can run, but you cannot hide from Saul of Tarsus. To further speak of how far gone Saul really was, the text mentioned, uh, if you notice in the text, he was both after men and women. He didn't care if he took mothers away from their children. He had such an intense hatred for Jesus and his followers that he said, hey, any suffering that I can inflict on them is justifiable. Saul was the least likely of all candidates for salvation. George Barnes is a Christian pollster who uh, polls uh, matters of faith out in culture. And in one of his uh, more recent surveys, Barna showed that 77% of people who accepted Jesus were under the age of 21. That means 23% of all people uh, only get saved after the age of 21. Here's another stat. The likelihood of a person receiving Christ past the age of 55 in North America is less than 5%. And ha- that stat's been true for decades. And so what we call those folks, that 5% that get saved a little later in life, or that 23% that get saved past the age of 21, what we call them in the realm of statistics are outliers. Now, I don't think there was any polling going on early in 33 AD, but if they were, they would look at Saul's life and say, hey, I don't mean to be negative, but our friend Saul here is what we call in the realm of statistics an outlier. Do you agree with that? Like nobody's looking like, hey, there's a shortage of missionaries. Nobody's looking around at Saul going, there's your dude, right? That's the guy. No, no. Everybody said, hey, if there's anyone who's never going to come to Christ, that in fact is him. He's around 30 years of age at this time, full of hatred, one of the worst enemies of the church, too far gone. And so the question becomes, can and does God have a history of saving the worst of the worst 
Isaiah chapter 59 verse 1 gives us the answer that we all need to believe today, which is this. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Let me give you a Cunningham paraphrase. God's grasp can reach anyone. That's what it's saying. No one has sinned so much they're outside the grace of God. No one's too far gone. If there's anyone who would have fit that bill, it would have been Saul of Tarsus. God radically changes Saul's life 2,000 years ago. He can radically change someone's life this morning and someone you've been praying for. Can I just share with you an encouraging word here this morning? God can do more in a moment than you can do in a lifetime. You can witness, you can pray, you can encourage, you can scheme, you, you know, all those kind of things. I don't know what scheme is. I just spoke in tongues, all right? <laughs> and think that the, there's no effect. It's, it's not doing anything. They're not listening. They don't even care. And in a moment, God can reach out and radically transform someone's life like he did Saul's. And when I say change, transform is the right word. I'm not talking about new outward habits or some kind of emotional experience that fades and leaves a person unchanged. I'm talking about a heart transplant where the affections and desires of their heart are reoriented. Basically, when a person gets radically saved and transformed, basically all the things they want to do are no longer the things they used to want to do. Change at the foundational level. Broken people being made whole. People who are in bondage to addictions being set free. People who are greedy becoming generous. People who are critical becoming gracious in speech. Radical transformation is the business of God. And so maybe you're going to think, okay, God can do that. I mean, if God can save Saul here in Acts chapter 9, God, God can save anyone. I just don't know how he's going to do it. Here's the good news. That's God's business, not yours. The Bible says that Paul planted Apollos watered, but God gives the increase. And so what's our role? Our role is simply this, is to invite God to intervene. I don't know if you're like me, but I like to plan. For those of you who like, don't like to plan, like to just everything's on a whim, just everything's, you know, kind of shooting from the hip kind of thing, you're not going to heaven, all right? I don't want to be legalistic. But I want to share that in a very encouraging pastoral way. I like to think about the future and make plans, get that, you know, goals and write them down. I, I love all of that process. I like to write out the steps to achieve all those goals. I've got life plan documents I've written, you know, years ago. Kind of every year I make goals and professional development, all that kind of stuff. I'm energized by the concept of progress. That's why I like change so much. There is no such thing as progress apart from change. Whether we like that or not, that is a true fact about change. And while that has some benefits, uh, guess what? It's also got some challenges. And if you're wired like that, one of the challenges is this, that when someone interrupts, slows down, puts a roadblock in front of my plans, I can get irritated and even angry. And sometimes people do that, and sometimes God does that in our lives. Like sometimes God shows up, prompts us, guides us, opens up new opportunities and, and equips us for those things. And all the while I'm thinking, oh, God, that's, that's great. And I'm thrilled that you would choose me to serve you in that way. But here's the problem. That's not on my goal sheet for 2021, right? And I see those interruptions, if I'm honest, at times as hindrance. But you know what? As I'm getting older, I'm beginning to see interruptions as interventions, especially when it comes from God. 
saying, hey, this, is, this feels like an eruption, but this may be God at work uh, in this very moment. And what we see over and over in Scripture is that when God chooses to show up and involve himself in someone's life, it often looks like an interruption, but it's actually a divine intervention. He does this with Saul here in Acts chapter 9. Look at verses 3 through 5 again. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he, he's in pursuit He's not out for a Sunday stroll. He's not out walking, enjoying the autumn weather. He's on his way. He approaches Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And this radical divine intervention radically changes the course of Saul's life. And when God moves in people's lives, here's why we don't think it's probable, is because oftentimes God does it through an improbable set of circumstances. I mean, look at this, what's happening here. This is a startling moment in biblical history, Saul's conversion. Lights flashing around Saul while he's on a mission to kill Christians. Saul being knocked on his keister, Right? An audible voice speaking directly to him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Saul spoke back to Jesus. I mean, this is an incredible, right? God does the improbable to accomplish his goals. And the reason that we often have little faith that God can reach people or use us in the, in the process is because we often operate in the problem. It's the way it's always been. It's the way they've always been. It's the way I've always been. Here, listen, God's not limited by your probability. Did you know that? God is sovereign and omnipotent and omniscient, and God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and in a moment sometimes, God shows up. Now, before we move on, I want to emphasize that subtle phrase that Jesus responds to Saul. Jesus asks him, go back there and look at verse 4. What does Jesus ask him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, when we hear that, we think, well, Saul's not openly persecuting Jesus. He's persecuting the church. He's going after Christians. There's nothing in here about Saul trying to, you know, speak ill of Jesus. But, but here's what I want you to understand. Do you see how closely Jesus identifies himself with the bride of Christ, the church? In the economy of God, the church and Jesus are inseparable. There is no such thing in the economy of God as loving God or loving Jesus and not loving his church. I've had people say that for years. You know, listen, I'm a huge fan of Jesus. I just don't like the church. One of the descriptors of the church is the bride of Christ. You know what that's like saying? That's like saying, hey, you're a great guy. I just can't stand your wife, right? And so notice in the passage, he says, hey, when you're persecuting the church, you in fact are persecuting me. They're inseparable. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says that Jesus Christ shed his blood for the church. And so Jesus says, hey, you're, you think you're just hurting these people. You're actually persecuting me because the church and the work of Christ are inseparable. So here's Paul having this discourse with the resurrected Jesus and he's blind for, for three days. Talk about getting someone's attention. Saul's on a mission and now has to be led by his friends to walk into Damascus like a child. And so let me ask you a very theologically deep and rich question this morning. Who would have thunk it, right? 
Who would have ever imagined that God would have intervened in a way that he did for this evil man on the road to Damascus? But can I just remind you this morning that every single time someone gets saved, that's exactly what happens. God intervening in someone's life, a miraculous act of God. People serving sin and self and self-righteousness and going their own way and living their life. And God shows up and intervenes life and radically transforms them by his grace. God did it once and God did it over and over and over in all of church history. And God can do it again this morning. And so there's no question that's how God is operative. The question is this, does our prayer life reflect that very belief? Let me make a confession. I need to be more consistent in this type of prayer. I don't know if you realize this or not, the majority of my time is spent around Christians as a pastor. And so I can find myself praying for my needs, praying for my family's needs, praying for the needs of people in our church, but I can find myself also not praying enough for those who are far from God and realizing that God may just use me to draw them to himself. That's exactly what happened here in Acts chapter 9. Go down to verse 19 or 15. Acts chapter 9 verse 15, we're introduced to a person named Ananias. And listen to this, but the Lord said to him, that's Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument, that's, that's Saul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Do you see that? Not only does God save the improbable, those who are far from him, God chooses in his sovereignty for reasons that I cannot explain this morning, God chooses to use people like us, like Ananias, as instruments of his grace in accomplishing his saving work in the lives of improbable people. God saves Saul, uses Ananias as an instrument of his grace in that process, and that pattern still at play today. God sends the saved. God sends the saved. God sends the saved over and over. And so whether you realize it or not this morning, you are a chosen instrument of God's grace to be used in the life of other people to communicate the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. And here's the good news. You don't have the hard part. God does. You're just sharing the message. And you think that person's too far gone. God says, hey, watch what I can do. Over and over and over again. And God allows us to be a part of that process. And so we invite God to intervene. We invite God to draw people to himself on a regular, as a pattern of our life. And here's, listen, here's a little prayer challenge I would encourage you to take. I know Missions Week is over, but if I could just, uh, missions could actually be a lifestyle, not a week, all right? Wake up every morning and pray this. God, I believe that you'll be at work all around me today. And I'm making myself available should you choose to sovereignly use me as an instrument of your grace in someone else's life. Would you just get up and pray that every day, starting tomorrow? God, I believe you're at work all around me today. And for reasons I don't understand, you've sovereignly chosen to use me and people like me as an instrument of your grace in the lives of the people I encounter, in the everyday, ordinary life that I'm living. And so, Lord, I'm available today. And so we pray and ask God to intervene. We pray and ask God to use us in that process in building a bold faith. And finally, we should be patient with spiritual stragglers. I've not studied a lot about the animal kingdom so I, this may be off, 
Um, and if it is, it would be very encouraging if you would correct me sometime. Uh, but I think that one of the slowest animals in the world is the sloth. Did you know that? But do you know this is scientifically proven, and when I mean that, it means I have four kids. That ten times slower than a sloth is a three-year-old when you have to get out of the door and you're late. Did you know that? Where are your shoes? How many times have you said that as a parent? <laughs> you know, what's incredible with a little kid? Like, they're impervious to your shame. We're going to be late. Right? Where's your, where's your clothes at? You don't have any clothes on. And you know, listen, as they get older, it doesn't get any better. Did you know that? Hey, wake up. You were supposed to be there 45 minutes ago, right? Oh, I had no idea. And I don't know about you, but I don't, in those moments, I don't feel incredibly spiritual. <laughs> in those moments. You know what I feel like? I'm fixing to light you up for the glory of God, right? <laughs> I remember being young, and when I was young, uh, I used to be, you know, I wanted my hair combed a certain way and all that kind of stuff. And so I just, I was a beautiful child. I just want to put that out there, all right? And I remember one morning getting up, and I, you know, overslept and overslept and overslept. <laughs> and my, I remember my dad waking up. And saying, and just furious, and he had this, I can still see it in my mind, this gold brush that he got, I think right when he got home from World War I, all right? And I, my hair, I just got my hair cut in a certain way, I was probably 10, 11 years old, and he just said, put up your hair, and he literally did this, shoot, one time. And so I looked like flock of seagulls going out of there. He wasn't phased, like, you're going to school, right? I get discouraged with stragglers. But here's what I want you to understand this morning. That you and I have to be patient with spiritual stragglers because here's why. We are one. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And God is pursuing and running us down when we're spiritually straggling over and over. And so when you see a person who's far from God, listen, don't give up on them. Just be patient with them. And sometimes we just think that person is, well, they're just, they're never going to get saved. I'm just, I'm done with them. They just had too bad of a church experience. They're like, got too many hang-ups in the past. They're a little too rough around the edges with their kids. Or they're too busy with their career and sports and their kids. And all those don't have time for Jesus. And because we, we begin to believe those things, what we're saying is that Jesus can't overcome these obstacles in their life. And so here we see in Acts chapter 9 is the most... Worst person you've ever met, spiritually speaking, is radically transformed. But what we also see in this text are some things that probably were wrestling on in the heart of Saul before this conversion. So sometimes people hear the gospel and get saved the first time they hear it. Radical transformation. Sometimes people on the 30, 40, 50 year plan. I've watched people get saved literally on their deathbed. And the Bible says because of God's grace that when the worker shows up late to the day's work, he still gets the same eternal reward. He said, that's not fair. You're right. That's grace. But here's what I need to understand. Repeating a prayer is easy. But I, just, I just want to share this. I think there will be lots of people in hell who repeated prayers at some point. Giving up idols of the heart is incredibly different, difficult 
And that's true for saved people who've experienced God's kindness and mercy in their lives. So how much more difficult is it for a person who's not following Jesus to completely surrender life and be willing to reorient not only the affections of their heart, but all their self-centered dreams and plans? They've got to lay aside some idols. And listen, that's hard for saved people. And so what do we see are some idols that Saul would have had to lay aside as a spiritual straggler? Two idols that lead to spiritual stragglers. Number one is the idol of control. Can we all agree from reading the account of Saul's life, Saul's not a guy who woke up every day at whenever he wanted to and just said, you know what, I don't know what I'm going to do today. Saul was driven, he was determined, it was a wicked ambition, but it was ambitious nonetheless. He said, in, in zeal, no one surpassed me. And so there would have been the laying aside of the idol of control. Let's do a little survey this morning. How many of you are actually doing for a living or did for a living what you thought you were going to do when you were little and you were growing up? Anybody doing what you thought you were going to do? Raise your hand up. Keep it up. Yeah, just a handful of you. Right? Just a handful of people. Uh, when I, <laughs> that's my story. When I was in the second grade, Miss Williams' class, we had an assignment. And it was to draw a map of a country. And Miss Williams got mine. She said, "This is the greatest map I've ever seen." And I humbly said, "I know." And she just lavished praise on me. And so then and there, at that moment, uh, I decided that the the trajectory of my life was going to be a map drawer. And I would literally, my mom still has some of these. I would literally sit around and draw maps. Also known as a cartographer. Also known as a nerdy weirdo. Right. My apologies to any cartographers in the room this morning. And now, I'm a pastor. Right? Like, that's not the natural. I was a cartographer, and then God saved me. You know? If you would have asked Saul, what do you want to be when you grow up? Never in his life would he had uttered, I want to be the world's greatest missionary. And so surrendering to Christ would have had a huge Laying aside the idol of control, his life had a wicked purpose, but it had purpose nonetheless. And then here he encounters Jesus in verse 3, in route to the very thing he loved to do, persecute Christians. And look at what verse 3 says. What's it say? Now, as he went on his way to Damascus, here was a guy who was in charge of his own journey. Here was a guy who was driven. And literally, why he's on his way to accomplish the very thing he'd been groomed to do, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. God radically interrupts his life. Radically interrupts his life. But it goes way beyond that. Saul had been groomed since his elementary years for the literal path he is on to Damascus, his father was also a Jew and a Pharisee, the most spiritual people, religious people you've ever met. And so Saul could match zealous credentials literally with anyone. At the age of approximately 13, Saul would have been packed off and sent to Jerusalem. His Jewish heritage was motivation enough to have good Jewish training. And so he would go off to Jerusalem and sat at the feet of the greatest teacher of the law of that day, a guy by the name of Gamaliel. And so his whole life, his career path had been determined early on a religious 
zealot. His whole life he'd been groomed for this very assignment. And then God interrupts his life. And in a moment, Saul loses all control of everything that he wanted to do. He has to lay all of that aside when he encounters the risen Jesus. That's the story of my life. Listen, you know in high school they give out these awards, like, you know, class clown or, you know, most athletic or most guys kind of thing. Listen, I won the award uh, in school, uh, least likely to ever become a pastor, all right? When, when no one in my family was a pastor, no one in my family went to church. I started going to church by myself as a, as a teenager. And so when God called me in the ministry, Guess, I, I was ready to start my senior year as an elementary education major at Miami University. And God shows up and wrecked all my plans. I still run into people today that say, I cannot believe you're a pastor. And I tell them, neither can my church. I just, I'm honest, right? And so when God shows up, not only do you does he change the course of your life, a life you've been building, but also you lose control over the outcome of that as well. Look at verse 6. Remember Saul, driven, ambitious, zealous, on a mission, walking six days. For the very thing he lived for, been trained for, and groomed for. And then look at verse 6 after he's encounters Jesus. Arise and enter the city, and you'll be told what to do. That's like loading up the car and leaving for vacation with no idea where you're heading. And some of you say, yep, that's about right, right? Not Saul. Saul's a guy who had everything, his whole life planned out, all the training, all this mission, everything. And he interrupts it right in the middle, literally while he's on mission. And God says, hey, surrender to me right now and go to the city. And then once you get there, you're going to have to trust me. And so be patient with spiritual stragglers because laying aside the idol of control is hard for saved people, let alone unsaved people. So the idol of control is hard to lay aside, so be patient. The second thing we see in Saul's life he would have had to lay aside is the idol of pride. When the risen Christ posed this question to Saul and said, why are you persecuting me? He wasn't trying to gain information. Just like in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve hide after they fell, ate the fruit, or deceived. And the Bible says that God came down, his presence in the garden, and he asked Adam, where are you? God wasn't ignorant of Adam's geographical location. He wanted to know if Adam knew where he was spiritually. That's what Jesus is asking. Jesus wasn't ignorant as to why Saul's persecuting him. He wants to force Saul to the place of confession. Pride kills confession. And you cannot be forgiven of sin until you repent of it. And repentance is always preceded by confession. The word confess literally in the Greek means to agree with God. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like to admit when I'm wrong a whole lot. Have I ever experienced that? I hate to eat my words. The only thing that tastes worse than an egg salad sandwich is a meal of wrong words. Am I right? Let me say it again, egg salad is what they serve for lunch every day in hell. He who has ears, let him hear. But what's worse than that is eating your own words. 
And can you imagine building your life on something, pursuing it with incredible determination, running really fast, only to find out you're running in the complete opposite direction? You're the athlete who picks up the fumble and runs into the wrong end zone. You're the basketball player who gets the steal and lays it up in the other team's goal. Only this time, it's for something that actually matters, eternity. And so responding to Jesus' invitation to follow me is a struggle because when you've been following your own rules, listen, pride doesn't want to confess. Pride doesn't want to say I was on the wrong road. Pride doesn't want to say I had the wrong motives. Pride doesn't say I was wrong in, in anything. And so to, to come and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ in this encounter, it, he asked him here in verse 5, why are you persecuting me? He would have lay, had to lay aside the idol of pride. Now, I've been pastoring for 20 years. Let me let you know a little secret this morning. People who are already saved don't like to lay aside their pride. Did you know that? And there's a random crazy chance you might even be sitting next to a person like that today. Right? And so how much more difficult is it for an unsaved person who's never experienced the kindness and the unconditional love of God to do that and say, my whole life I've been living for the wrong things. And so be patient with spiritual stragglers. Be kind, be loving, understand that struggle and all that they would have to lay aside to truly surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, just like what happened in Saul's life here. Don't try to do the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember this, no one is ever scolded or shamed into the kingdom of God. Let me repeat that, it was a good place for an amen and you missed it. No one is ever scolded or shamed into the kingdom of God. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've had parents of grown children show up at Easter or Christmas Eve and they march them up to me, some of them older than me, and so this is my child or my grandchild. You'd never know it because they've never been in church. And I raised them better than that. And I just look at them. <laughs> I just want to mouth the words, I'm sorry. And so if you're here today and you think, your lost cause spiritually, then Acts chapter 9 shows us clearly you're not. It doesn't matter how far away you've ran from God, God will meet you in the middle of the road where you are and radically unleash his grace on your life and you will never, ever be the same. God truly saves the worst of the worst. Paul said later, was known by Paul later, said, I'm the chief of sinners and God radically saved him. Jesus didn't come from the healthy. The Bible says he came for those who are spiritually sick. And if you'll turn towards Jesus this morning, you'll not be scolded or shamed. You will be loved. Jesus is the only person who knows you fully, yet loves you completely. That is the gospel. And for all of us who are weary from chasing prodigals, keep praying. Keep loving because you never know when they may unexpectedly find themselves on a Damascus road. And according to Acts chapter 9, stranger things have actually happened. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I just want to ask two questions in light of the truth we've encountered today. Number one. If you've been running from the Lord, 
and you're afraid that if you turn around towards him again, you're going to be scolded or shamed. Hear me this morning. That is a lie from the pits of hell. That if you'll confess that and repent of that and turn back towards Jesus in faith, you'll receive his mercy. You won't be shamed, you'll be loved. And so if God can save truly the worst of the worst, God can save you this morning. Would you pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Would you humbly confess your sins before a holy God? Would you declare your belief that Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, and rose the third day? And would you receive Jesus Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins? For those of you who are saved, every person in the room, me included, has prodigals in their life. And so would you just pray today, right now, and tell the Lord, I'm available. God, use me in improbable ways, like we see in Acts 9, as an Ananias in their life, as an instrument of your grace. And Lord, forgive me for my unbelief. The arm of the Lord truly is not too short to save. And so would you commit yourself afresh today to start praying again, to start loving again, to quit scolding and shaming. And pray by faith, God, use me as an instrument of your grace because no one is too far gone. Father, we're grateful for your grace. It's not something we read about historically in Acts chapter 9. God, it's something we live And so, God, for those of us who have been lavish with your grace, I pray that we're dispensers of it as well. That people will come into contact with us and would say, no one was ever more loving than they were. No one was ever more encouraging. The whole world gave up on me. But they never did. Lord, for one simple reason, because you never gave up on us. And so, God, may we be sent out of here today as an army of Ananiases. Truly believing that you're at work all around us today and no one is outside of your grace. We believe that today. May we live it this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.